0: to love that makes me see On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word.
1: In this fourth chapter of Ephesians, Paul is beginning to deal with Christian conduct, you know, the practical application of all the great doctrinal teachings in the first three chapters. And and he began with living out the Christian life within the church in verses 3 to 16 and beginning again in verse 17 and all the way through 521, uh, Paul will uh, deal with the issue of how we're to live out the Christian life and our personal lives and, and our relation to fellow believers, but also to the world around us. In verses 17 to 19, Paul began describing how we're to live out the Christian life first by exhorting us uh, how we're not to live. We're no longer to live the way we lived as unbelievers in the futility of our thinking, darkened, hardened against God, separated from the life of God, calloused, insensitive to holiness, given up to sensuality, indulging in every kind of impurity. But Paul reminded us that in spite of this dark background uh, we had as unbelievers, God saved us and we came to know Christ, and his argument was, this is not the way you learned Christ. Yes, sin had alienated us from the very life of God, but by grace, through faith, we came to know Christ personally. We received new life, eternal life. We became new creations in Christ. And Paul says, you you learned Christ, you heard him, you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. But we have not learned Christ in such a way that allows us to say, yes, I I did believe in Christ, but I'm still living as I did before. I and mean, that's impossible. We cannot have been born again and then live as we did before because now we're to live holy lives. And so now the question is well, how does knowing Christ manifest itself in our lives? How are we as Christians, as new creations in Christ, to live distinctive and godlike lives in a fallen world? One well, verse 22, Paul said it involves putting off the old self. In other words, all of the old sinful habits, patterns, and, and practices, all the things that belong to our former life as an unbeliever, because the old person we were, that man, that person is dead, died with Christ. And we've now been born again. At, at conversion, we were made new creations in Christ. And that's why we should and must act like it and live like it. And so we're no longer to live the way we did before. That's not who we are. And then Paul said that we must be continually uh, being renewed and in the spirit of our minds. And, of course, this is done through the Word of God and prayer. We need to become so saturated with God's Word that we begin to reflect His ways, His values, His goals, His methods. I mean, this is the, the renewing of the mind which Paul calls for. But the Christian life involves more than simply putting off the old. Only putting off the old, that's moralism, and it saves no one. The Christian life involves more than the mere putting off of the old. We must also, as Paul says in verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God to to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We're new creations, new persons in Christ. That fact was settled at conversion. And so now we need to make sure we're we're putting on or living out the lifestyle of someone who actually belongs to Christ, because our new nature includes a different mindset and lifestyle, and we're to live accordingly. We're we're to live a life that delights in God's truth and delights in holy living, a life that is characterized by loving God with all of our hearts, loving our neighbors, and loving one another in the church as Christ loved us. I mean, these are the realities of the Christian life. This is what we are. The gospel makes us right with God and plants within our lives the very life of God. And so, not only do believers live their lives in Christ, but God in Christ lives in us. And that is not something that can remain hidden. And where there is no new life, there's been no new birth. Because by their fruits you will know them, Jesus said. The evidence of the new birth is a new life and thus a new lifestyle that gladly seeks to walk in obedience to God's Word and His will. And the New Testament could not be more clear and more insistent that anyone who professes to be a Christian but does not keep God's commandments and does not love their fellow Christians is a liar, the truth is not in them, and God's love does not abide in them, John said in First John. And so in light of the new birth, our new life in Christ, our lives must be radically different. And we should be able to see a distinct difference between the old person that we were and the new person that we now are, and we are to live in a way consistent with that newness. But what does that mean? You know, what does living out this new life in Christ look like, practically speaking? Well, in a sense... Uh, the remainder of Ephesians is written to answer those questions. In this section, verses 25 to 32, Paul gives six examples of what our conduct as Christians should be. And he does so by giving a series of negative commands, what not to do. And in most cases, not all of them, but in most of them, uh, the statement of what not to do is immediately followed by a statement of what to do. So this, this corresponds to putting off one type of conduct and and putting on another. I mean, it's again, it's never enough for Christians not to sin. That That's moralism. Our calling is to put off sin and then to put something on, to, to put on a life according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And in this passage, Paul says, believers, says to believers that we are to put off lying, we're to put off sin when angry, uh, or we're not to be... Uh, excuse me, we're not to sin when angry, we're to put off stealing, corrupt talk, and ungodly behavior, and we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. On the contrary, he will tell us, we are to speak the truth, work hard, speak what is good for edification, and be kind to others. And so you could outline uh, this passage this way. Don't lie but speak the truth, verse 25. Don't sin when you're angry, verses 26 and 27. Don't steal but work hard, verse 28. Don't speak what is harmful but what builds up. Verse 29, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, and don't be bitter or angry but forgive one another. Verses 31 and 32. We'll just get through verse 27 this morning. But looking now at verse 25, you'll notice this section begins with the word therefore, which connects Paul's admonitions to verses 20 to 24 and the concept of putting off the old self and putting on the new but especially to the idea expressed in verse 24 that the new self is created in the image of God. And Paul now spells out in the most practical of ways what it means to live as a new creation made in God's image. Here is what that should look like in the daily lives of believers. And so he begins by saying, therefore, having put away falsehood. That's not the best translation. It's better translated as therefore, Laying aside falsehood, or as one paraphrase put it, therefore, stop telling lies. Stop telling lies. And that is so easily read, so easily said, and so easily ignored because disregard for truth and a disposition for lying are everywhere. As that one man wrote, ever since the fall, lying has been a common characteristic of unregenerate mankind. Our society today is so dependent on lying that if it suddenly turned to telling the truth, our way of life would collapse. If world leaders began speaking only the truth, World War III would certainly ensue. So many lies are piled on other lies, and so many organizations, businesses, economies, social orders, governments, and treaties are built on those lies that the world system would disintegrate if lying suddenly ceased. Resentment and animosity would know no bounds and the confusion would be unimaginable. I mean, we are immersed, uh, and I'm sh- I know you're aware of this, we're immersed in a culture which just oozes with deception and lying you know, and falsehood. Members of the media have their uh, or make their living, stretching, shaping, spinning and, and tweaking the truth, presenting a, a false narrative to intentionally mislead the public. Advertisements are notoriously known for lie, and we're constantly bombarded by lies and falsehood from cults and religious charlatans. Lying is one of the chief characteristics of the old life. In fact, the very first sin of man was the result of a lie. The cause of that first sin was the lie that the devil whispered to Eve. It was a lie about the character and being of God. And so the the original sin was produced by a lie. And this is the thing that has brought the world down from being a paradise to being the world in which you and I live at this very moment. Paul says, put away falsehood or lying. And that, that word, falsehood, means just that, lying. But this word includes every kind of deception. To lie is to tell a deliberate untruth. It's to create a wrong impression, you know, by shading the truth, telling a half-truth, or not telling the whole truth, withholding information, remaining silent, allowing someone to believe something which you know is not true. Lying includes exaggeration, embellishment, and the distortion of facts, making false excuses. It includes failing to keep promises, the betraying of confidence, flattery. But lying isn't only limited to speech. Uh, we can lie without saying a word. We can lie with a look. We can lie by our actions and by our false pretensions and, and professions. This, this term really covers falsehood in general. And there is nothing that is more characteristic of the non-Christian sinful life than deceit and lying. Unfortunately, when it comes to to lying, we should not naively think that such things do not exist among professing believers. They do. The church is no exception. Paul is speaking to believers when he says, "Stop your lying." I mean, members of the body of Christ consciously lie and then, you know, find some subtle justification. You know, why do believers and really people in general practice lying, even though it's it's harmful and and destructive? Well, a couple of reasons, probably. I mean, in order to make ourselves look better. You know, how many Christians lie as soon as they walk through the door of the church when somebody says, "How are you doing?" I mean, we laugh, but that's true. Somebody can be dying on the inside and really struggling, but because they want to make themselves look better, they say, well, I'm I'm doing great. You know, I mean, and, and some of the things that Christians lie about the most is their spiritual condition. You know, their spiritual maturity. They want people to think they're more mature and more... Uh, uh, theologically sound than they truly are. The other things that Christians uh, lie about often is their money and their giving. We also lie to protect ourselves from consequences to cover up our sin. I mean, you know how that goes. You commit a sin. You don't want to be found out, and you don't want anybody to know it, so you tell a lie. Because you've told that lie, you have to tell another one to cover it up, and on and on and on uh, the, the lying and deceit go. We lie to gain something we want, you know, a good grade, a, a promotion, tax benefits, uh, uh, you know, some position and the opportunities to shade or hide the truth to avoid personal consequences or for personal gain are constant challenges and frequent causes of sin. One man was preaching about the lies of Ananias and Sapphira there in Acts 5, and he asked the congregation, If God still struck people dead for lying, where would I be? And the congregation snickered a bit, but the smiles all disappeared when the bishop shouted, I'd be right here preaching to an empty church. And then, I mean, lying characterizes Satan, not God. Speaking of Satan, Jesus said in John eight forty four, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies so when believers lie, they're imitating their old father, Satan, and not their heavenly father. I mean, it was Satan's lie in the garden that led to the fall. In fact, as ruler of the world, he has built the entire world system on lies. And the enemy lies to pull people further away from God and further away from God's plan for their lives. And this is exactly what Satan did in the garden to lead Adam and Eve away from God. He does the same to people today. And when Christians lie, we not only mar the the, the image of God, but we also push ourselves and others farther away from God. I mean, when the world sees our lie, I mean, it says, if this person is a Christian, then I want absolutely nothing to do with Christ. I mean, when we lie and deceive, we open the door for the devil to work in and through us. And it seems that we have forgotten that the Word of God tells us that God hates lying. You know, Proverbs 6.16 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Proverbs 12.22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are His delight. Proverbs 12.19, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Proverbs twenty verse seventeen, bread gained by deceit, or, or lying is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. Proverbs one six, the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. I mean, lying is a great sin against God, it is a sin against the church and against love. And that is why God struck down Ananias and Sapphira in the first church, because he wanted truth, not deception, and not hypocrisy. I mean, even the unbelieving world agrees that a liar is the most despicable kind of person. And yet, though we may all agree about that in theory, lying is the most common, the most universal of all sins I mean, some are guilty of certain sins, some commit others, but here's something that is common to all men, and though we hate it and despise it and denounce it, we're guilty of it. I mean, lying reveals the radical nature of sin because it is not merely a matter of of outward acts, but rather it is an expression of what is truly in the heart. I mean, Jesus said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, or lying and slander. And people can deceive others. But God is all-seeing, all-knowing. And he sees and knows what is in the heart. And he demands, he insists upon honesty, this, this truth in the inward part. I mean, lying is one of the things that belongs to the old man, and it has no place in the life of the believer. Yet, how frequently Christians let this characteristic of the old man appear in their lives. And that should be concerning. Because those who practice a lifestyle of habitual lying may in fact not be saved. But yes, believers stumble in this area, and and if and when we do, then we confess and repent. But someone who is a habitual liar, that is the habitual practice of their life they belong to the kingdom of the devil whose whole being is a lie. He's the father of lies. There's no truth in it. He is the embodiment of evil, and to lie is what he teaches others to do. And so if lying is one's continual habitual practice, then they are conveying the suggestion that they are still in the grip of the devil and that they belong to his kingdom and therefore are not born again. In addition, uh, we read in Revelation twenty-two, fifteen: "Outside, outside of, of the, the New Jerusalem, we could say outside of heaven are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers and idolaters, and everyone who, who loves and practices falsehood. Revelation 21, eight. But as for the cowardly, the, faith, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Paul leaves no room here for equivocation because there is no place in the life of a christian or in the church for lying that belongs to the old life we belong to Jesus Christ who is the way the truth and the life I mean we are the children of God the children of light we belong to the truth I may mean, we are the children of God the God who cannot lie and we are to imitate our Father and to manifest His virtues and His glories, and we do so by putting away lying. I mean, nothing is so characteristic of the Christian life as the fact that it belongs to the whole realm of truth. Truth. And therefore, Paul says, put away falsehood or stop lying. But it's not enough merely to put away lying. Believers must also speak the truth, which is why Paul says, looking back at verse 25, that each one of you speak the truth of his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And this statement is, is closely parallel to Zechariah 8.16, which says, speak the truth to one another. By saying each one of you, Paul is emphasizing the individual responsibility of every believer to speak the truth with his neighbor. And of course, Jesus expanded the concept of neighbor to include anyone in need, but when Paul uses the word neighbor here, he is thinking particularly of our fellow believers. You say, how do we know? Well, this is made clear in the rest of the verse, which says, for we are members one of another. And the phrase members one of another shows that the exhortation has particular reference to believers in their relations within the local church, and of course, this would in no way suggest that Christians should take the truth less seriously when speaking to outsiders. I mean, our relations with the world in general—you uh, know—we should, should have a reputation for truthfulness. I mean, Christians should be men and women whose word is their bond. But here in verse 25, Paul specifically has in mind our obligations toward one another in the church to always be truthful. And as new creations in Christ, we're we're to always speak the truth. The Christian's word should be absolutely trustworthy. His yes should mean yes, and his no, no. I mean, this is one of the hallmarks of our new life in Christ. And not to speak the truth to a fellow believer is to despise Christ's body and therefore Christ himself. And in addition, lies are like cancers. Lies are like cancers that cause the body of Christ, his church, to putrefy and lose social credibility in its calling to proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior. I mean, lies, deceit, False messages among the members of of the body actually render the body dysfunctional. And it's for this reason that one commentator called lying a monstrosity. Another put it this way. A lie is to stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. This is so because a lie is a a sable shaft from the kingdom of darkness. There is no place in the Christian ethic for the well-intentioned lie. In the moral behavior which Christ inspires, the end never justifies the mean. And so it's as unthinkable for one Christian to lie to another as it would be for a nerve in the body to deliberately send a false message to the brain or for the eye to deceive the rest of the body when danger is approaching. I mean, what happens when the eye does not communicate the truth of a hot iron to the hand? I mean, what happens? Well, fingers get burned. Well, if one member of the body lies to another, if we don't communicate what is true to each other, then the body cannot perform its functions properly. I mean, Paul is reminding us that that our words, you know, what we say, affect not only ourselves, but the ability of the church. It affects the ability of the church that the body of Christ to function. As one man said, relationships of trust are the wheels on which the ministry of the church progresses. And when trust disappears, the work of the body comes to a screeching halt until that trust can be restored. And the reason for this exhortation is not simply because lying is sinful and an offense against God, but, as Paul says, we are members of one another. And relationships and fellowship are built on trust and trust is built on the truth. And so let me ask you, how can there be true fellowship if there's lying? Lying is the exact opposite of true fellowship. What makes fellowship possible is trust. Mutual trust, the feeling that you can trust one another, and therefore you can speak freely and openly to one another. But the moment lying comes in, trust is destroyed. And therefore, fellowship is destroyed. You're no longer free. You don't know how much you can believe or what you can't believe. You don't know uh, how much you can trust the other person uh, because lying destroys fellowship, relationships, and it makes unity impossible. And are we to put forth all diligence, I mean, intense effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Well, lying makes unity impossible. And so it's hard to imagine a more destructive force in the body of Christ, or, for that matter, in marriages or in uh, any other relationship, than lying. I mean, virtually everything else we do to and against one another can be healed, but deliberate, conscious, premeditated deception and lying is perhaps the most devastating of all. One man wrote, Something truly sacred is shattered when we lie to one another. The confidence we have in another person, so essential for life in the body of Christ, cannot be easily repaired. The safety we feel because of a shared commitment to the truth is violated when deceit is embraced. It makes us feel vulnerable and tentative in our relationship with others. And when someone lies to us, we feel abandoned by them. I mean, even abused. It causes distance in relationships. I mean, someone can be guilty of any number of sins and we can forgive them when they repent, but Rebuilding trust in someone who has deceived and, and misled us, that's a monumental task. The church cannot function properly if its members lie to one another or fail to work together honestly and lovingly. I and mean, We cannot effectively minister to one another or with one another if we don't speak the truth in love. <laughs> I mean the sin of lying like like all sin defiles believers. And it takes us back to the old life. It it grieves the Holy Spirit. But you see, Christ has changed our life, our lives. And so Now we have the ability by the grace and strength that God supplies to change our lifestyle. And that change starts with putting off the sins of the old life, which means not lying to one another or to anyone. Instead, we're to put on the new self, speaking the truth, uh, for we're members one of another. Christians are continually to speak the truth. I mean, as we learned back in uh, verse 15 of chapter 4, we're to speak the truth in loud. And we speak the truth in love by speaking God's word. And as believers, we're, we're to speak the word of God to one another. I mean, we speak the truth by exposing lies. And many times by standing, quiet, standing, uh, standing quietly while others lie or believe lies, where we implicitly take part in the deception. no. Well, speaking the truth includes exposing lies, as Paul later clarifies in Ephesians 5.11. You know, we're to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And we must do the same in our personal uh, church and work relationships. And we do this because it protects people and because it is honoring to God. We speak the truth by challenging people in sin. I mean, a common lie propagated in the world is that it's it's polite uh, and therefore preferable to be untruthful if the truth would upset someone or or make them angry. Well, the word of God teaches the opposite. I mean, one of the ways we speak truthfully is by lovingly challenging people in sin who are falling away from God. This is what a true friend and neighbor does. When we lovingly speak the truth to one another, uh, uh, Especially when one member is sinning, the body grows. But we also have to remember, as we learned in verse 15, that speaking the truth in love is not an excuse to blast someone uh, in the name of love or truth. It's not an excuse to give someone a piece of your mind and just to air all your, you know, your criticisms. The Christian is never entitled to act or speak in an unChrist-like way. We are to speak the truth lovingly to one another. It means doing so with genuine concern for the well-being of of another person. It's being patient, kind, tender-hearted, and sensitive in how we, we talk to them because our motive is to restore and to build up in the faith. And so Paul says here, put away or put off falsehood and speak the truth. I mean, that's it, pure and simple. Speak the truth so we should ask ourselves, have we told any lies lately? Any white lies? Which we know there's no such thing. A lie is a lie. You know, are we presently lying? Are we lying in words? Are we lying by silence? Are we lying by our actions? I mean, these are great sins against Christ and his body. And when we lie, the Holy Spirit is grieved, and he's not smiling on our lie. And if this is true of us, then we need to repent and ask the Holy Spirit to make us truthful person. So first of all, Paul says, put away falsehood. Secondly, Paul admonishes us not to sin when we're angry look at verse 26 be angry he says and do not sin you know and there are 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 those who try to you know explain this away but the fact of the matter is Paul's command here is to be angry and this is a direct quote from Psalm 44 this indicates to us that there is a proper anger a good anger but the command to be angry just doesn't sound right, does it? And we're uncomfortable with a command like this. We find ourselves trying to avoid or explain it away because anger just doesn't sound godly. But you know what? We have to remember that there are two kinds of anger. There is the anger of man, which does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, the anger which is a manifestation of our old self, which, which must be put off. But then there is the anger, which is an expression of God's righteousness, which is to be put on. And so we're commanded in our text to be angry, but be angry in a way that is righteous, in a way that is a reflection of God. Loved ones, there is a righteous anger, a righteous indignation that every believer should have. Well, what is this righteous? anger look like well somebody said it's when you get mad but don't cuss that's not exactly right (laughs) righteous indignation is a holy anger against sin in fact it is even sinful for us not to be angry The Christian is never to be indifferent or apathetic when the character of God is questioned or blasphemed or when God's truth is trampled in society and in the church. When we see hypocrisy and unbelief in the church, a lack of anger uh, would be a sign of our indifference and perhaps even our involvement in those sins. Likeness to God will mean that we share his righteous anger at what sin has done in his creation. You know, when we see a social and political injustice, then we should be righteously angry at at abortion and euthanasia, the sexual exploitation of women and children, and the arrogance uh, of power and wealth. And we have a God-given right and an obligation to be angry at the appropriate objects, at sinful behavior, at moral corruption, and at unjust circumstances. And frankly, we could use more of this kind of anger today, because too often, believers remain silent and apathetic, while sin and injustice just run rampant. We need to feel anger as Christians. I mean, if we are indifferent to injustice, then evil will prevail. And so don't encourage the spread of evil through your indifference, your apathy. We should hate sin just like God hates sin. You know, David wrote in Psalm 119, verse 53, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. You know, God was angry at the unbelief of His people. God is angered by the mistreatment of those who are helpless, like, you know, the widows and the orphans. God was angry when men turned from trusting and worshiping Him to worshiping idols. God was and is angered by the grumbling and complaining of His people, which is often expressed by resistance to His appointed leadership. God is angered by disobedience to His Word and His command. But God wasn't the only one who was angry. Our Lord Jesus himself was also angry. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus expressed righteous indignation when he turned over the tables in the temple. Later, in response to the religious leader's question about healing on the Sabbath, Mark says that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Toward the end of his public ministry, Jesus just, Excoriated the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the religious people of the day. I mean, in a, in a series of seven woes, Jesus poured out his righteous anger toward these blind guides who were disgracing their office and, and leading God's sheep astray. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, blind guides, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. In other words, you look good on the outside, but inside you're full of rottenness. It is true that Jesus' anger was without sin. But if we're to be like him, the absence of godly righteous anger on our part can only point to our unlikeness. God was angry. Jesus was angry. Godly men in Scripture were also angered by unrighteousness. Moses was angered at Pharaoh's hardened heart and his refusal uh, to God to let the Israelites go. He was angry when he came down from the mountain and saw the children of Israel worshiping the golden calf. And the text doesn't say so, but it would appear that David was angered by Goliath's blasphemy. And when we know the Psalms indicate David was angry with the enemies of God. The Apostle Paul was angered when he learned that false teaching had infiltrated the churches in Galatia and that that some were actually buying into it. I mean, Paul's entire letter to the Galatians is white-hot with his anger and outrage. And one example of Paul's anger in Galatians is, is seen in his rebuke of Peter and others for their hypocrisy in dealing with their Gentile brothers and sister. And when Paul was illegally beaten and detained at Philippi, he refused to allow his persecutors to simply release him. No, he demanded and received the public act of apology, which no doubt went a long way in securing the protection of the church at Philippi from injustice like that in the future. You see, as we grow to be more like Christ, we'll also grow in righteous anger towards sin, toward the things that that anger God. And of course, in talking about being angry with sin, first and foremost, we should be angry at our own sin, which should lead us to take whatever drastic steps are needed to deal with it. But even though Paul commands us to be angry, he also recognizes that even anger that begins as righteous indignation can easily and and quickly give way to sin, you know, becoming ungodly. And this is why immediately after he commands us to be angry, Paul says, look at verse 26, and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Anger against evil can be righteous. But there are other times when anger is sinful. And so when we're angry, what we need to do is determine whether it's righteous or unrighteous anger. You say, well, how do we do that? Well, Matthew Henry uh, quoted a a man who said, If we would be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. And we should be more jealous for the glory of God than for any interest or reputation of our own. So that's a, a helpful guideline. If you want to be angry and not sin, then be angry at nothing but sin. What is a righteous or godly anger? Well, it's a godlike anger. It's an expression of the anger which uh, God has toward the actions of men. I mean, godly people are angry when God is angry. It's, it's an anger which is consistent with the holy and righteous character of God. Righteous anger is a reaction to sin or injustice, usually against other. So when we see uh, sin or injustice against others, it should move us to righteous anger, which then should motivate us to take action as we are able. And thirdly, righteous anger is lawfully expressed. You know, The Old Testament law not only revealed that the conduct that was unacceptable to God, making him angry, but what the consequences of God's anger would be. You know, godly anger is not vigilante justice. It is legal justice. I mean, those who hate abortion but express their anger by attacking doctors or nurses or by burning the abortion clinics are not expressing their anger legally. That is an ungodly anger that should absolutely be punished. Righteous anger is not explosive. You know, it's not flying off the handle. It's it's only slowly provoked. Why? Well, Exodus 34.6 tells us the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And God's anger doesn't have a hair trigger. It doesn't fly off the hand. God doesn't take pleasure in expressing his anger in the judgment of men. And the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And godly anger is always under control. Godly anger doesn't lose its temper. I mean, ungodly anger is excessive and abusive. Godly anger never is. Godly anger is always under control of the one expressing it rather than anger taking control of them. And so there are times when righteous indignation is called for in the life of a believer. The godly anger can be controlled and not express itself inappropriately, but we have to be very, very careful. We have to be careful to be angry to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way. And that's not easy, is it? Because our trouble is that we are most often angry at the wrong time for the wrong reason. And it's usually because of our own personal feelings, pride, and and self-image are wrapped up in our reaction. One man said, Anger that is sin is self-defensive and self-serving, that is resentful of what is done against oneself. It is the anger that leads to murder and to God's judgment. Righteous anger, on the other hand, is primarily concerned with offenses against God and others. We sin in anger when the cause is self. When our anger is directed not so much against the sin as the sinner and because of some personal hurt or offense, rather than for the sake of Christ's glory and the honor of his name. To be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. So when Paul commands Us to be angry. He didn't have in mind temper tantrums, uncontrolled fits of rage, lingering bitterness, and a longing for revenge. Paul is quite clear when it comes to that kind of anger. He says, don't do it. So, how do we deal with this? Well, when we're angry, we need to evaluate the reason for our anger. Is it selfish? Is it all about our self, you know, rooted in pride and a, re, and a response to uh, a per- personal injustice or a perceived a personal injustice or slight of some kind? Or is it about sin against God and others? But I mean, if our anger is rooted in pride and a response to personal injustice, we need to confess our sin to God and others if we've sinned against them and repent. When we're angry, we should probably take time before responding. I mean, it's possible to be righteously angry, but yet still sin in the way that we respond. In fact, righteous anger can can lead to to cursing, physical violence, and and other serious sin. So we need to take some time before responding. And Nehemiah is a good example of someone taking time uh, before responding to a report of gross injustice. In Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, this, Nehemiah is speaking, and this is what he says. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. So I went out and slapped them all around. No, that's not what it says. No, he says in verse 7, I took counsel with myself. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them. And so after hearing the charges, Nehemiah didn't respond immediately. He took counsel with himself. In other words, he he pondered the situation. He took time to consider and to think it through. And similarly, one of the ways that we keep ourselves from sinning in anger is by taking time to reflect and pray and get counsel before responding. And thirdly, when we're angry, we need to seek to resolve whatever the issue is as soon as possible. That's why Paul says now in verse 26, do not let the sun go down under your anger. And this is not meant to be taken literally. This does not mean Eskimos at the North Pole may be angry and hold a grudge for six months while the sun is up. Right? Right? What Paul is saying is don't let your righteous anger become sinful and so resolve the situation as soon as possible. Don't let it go on for an extended period of time. If it's sinful anger, confess that and repent. If it's righteous anger, seek to resolve the situation. And sometimes it may take days or even weeks to work out full reconciliation. But the longer you let a broken relationship go without reconciliation, the easier it will be for Satan to drive a wedge into the relationship, thus creating division and disunity in the body of Christ. And anything that disrupts our fellowship with God and with our brothers and sisters in Christ should immediately be made right. So Paul says we must deal with anger quickly because unresolved anger can lead to destructive sin. And so the time to be angry is short. I mean, to allow it to go on for an extended period of time is dangerous, foolish, and unwise. And not only that, it gives the enemy opportunity. And that's why Paul says in verse 27 give no opportunity to the devil. And interestingly, Paul does not say the devil produces anger, but that it it gives the devil opportunity to come in and wreak havoc in our lives. And this applies really equally to any behavior that is characteristic of the old self. And the implication of this is that any unchecked sinful behavior gives the devil opportunity to cause strife within the life of the individual and the church, and Satan is always very quick to grab a hold of that opportunity. I mean, Satan may take advantage of unresolved anger to promote other sins, such as slander, strife, or even physical violence. And Satan would no doubt seek to use our anger to to create divisions within the body of Christ. I mean, many churches have been split over petty differences between believers. And Satan, as the accuser of the brethren, will surely use sinful anger as an opportunity to accuse us before God and and perhaps may use it or may use us to accuse our fellow believers. As one man said, Satan recognizes unrighteous, unresolved anger as a fertile field capable of producing all kinds of sin, and sin is his specialty. I mean Satan's only desire is to kill, steal, kill, and destroy. And when righteous anger remains unresolved or, or sinful anger is found in a Christian, Satan seeks to fan, uh, fan it into flames. For as one man said, he cultivates the burning embers of anger in an upset person in order to destroy his relationships both with God and others. And so because the devil is always on the prowl seeking whom he may devour, according to Peter, We as Christians are not to make his efforts any easier. And anger does that very thing. You know, as believers, we've been raised with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Nevertheless, uh, as you are all well aware we are engaged in a spiritual battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so we're to put on the full armor of God so that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil and be able to withstand in the evil day. And verses 26 to 27 are an example of how this spiritual battle is to be fought. The struggle takes place within the hearts and lives of believers. I mean, Through righteous, unresolved anger, or spiritual, uh, sinful, uncontrolled anger, or any sinful behavior for that matter, uh, Satan is able to gain a foothold in the Christian's life to exploit and use to achieve his own wicked ends. And that is why as believers, we need to withstand every temptation so that the influence of the evil one may be resisted, and we can. We are to resist the devil, James tells us, and he will flee from us. And so how are we to act on our anger so that we produce what is righteous and profitable rather than unrighteous, giving Satan an opportunity? Well, other than dealing with it quickly, you know, seeking to resolve it as soon as possible, Paul doesn't really tell us uh, what we should do here. But other scriptures do tell us what's usually required of us. In short, that the process of church discipline is the course of action we should take. And the first step in that process is confrontation, and, and the rest of the process is outlined in Matthew 18, and we're not going to take the time to go through that. And then, in those cases in which our brother is angry with us, we have a responsibility to go to that brother and seek to bring about a reconciliation as quickly as possible in a manner which reflects the righteousness of God. But in saying that, it's also true that from time to time there will be cases where confrontation is not possible or even advisable. But the Word of God provides us with the ultimate cure for our anger, and that is to leave it in the hands of him who alone can judge men in truth and justice. Paul said in Romans twelve seventeen 17-19, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. I think it's safe to say that much, if not most, of our anger is the wrath of man and not the righteous anger of God. But as new creations in Christ, were to put this away. We're to put it off so that we see less and less of this, you know, self-centered, selfish anger in our lives. But at the same time, if we're to take this text seriously, We must also say that we should see more righteous anger than we do. Because if God is angered by sin, then we should be angered by it as well. But many professed Christians today seem to be more willing to accommodate sin than to condemn it and to remove it from our midst. As one man wrote, All too often I see parents, Christian parents, who think of the sinful actions and attitudes of their children as cute, rather than to be angered by it and to deal with it as God would have us do. We're not angered by rebellion, irate over injustice, distressed by abortions and immorality and sin. We think of a man like Lot as soft on sin. But the Scriptures tell us this righteous man was vexed in his soul over the sin which was all about him. When we see sin as God does, it will make us angry. And when we're righteously angry as new creations in Christ— We need to make very sure that our anger is righteously expressed and doesn't lead to sin, and see to it that we resolve the situation as soon as possible, not letting it go for an extended period of time, thus giving the devil opportunity to exploit the situation. And then, as Paul said in verse 25, we're to put off falsehood. We're to stop lying. As new creations in Christ, we're to speak the truth. Me, truth characterizes the new life in Christ, and, and we're to live in accordance with the truth which is in Jesus, and we're to live as truthful people. And the reason Paul gave for Christians speaking the truth is not that God hates lies, or that Jesus Christ is truth, both of which are true. Paul reinforces the command to speak the truth by reminding us that we are members of one another. You know, together we're members of the body of Christ and not to speak the truth to a fellow believer, again, is to despise Christ's body and consequently Christ himself. You know, if the Holy Spirit has used this to convict you of falsehood, and you should repent, confess it to the Lord, and also to those that you have wronged, those you have lied to or lied against, and then ask the Holy Spirit to make you a truthful person. A person who habitually speaks the truth in love. And may God work these things in all of our hearts.
0: On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. Calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me sick. I